both language and music use a number of the same brain resources. So if you train on one, there can be a certain amount of transfer to skills in the other. Curious Neuron Podcast, where we take a compassionate approach to science-based parenting. Join us as we break down the science of child development and parenting into digestible and applicable advice. Welcome. Hi, friends. Welcome back to another episode of the Curious Neuron Podcast. My name is Cindy Huffington, and I am your host. If you are new here, welcome. We talk about research here and parenting and child development. And today's episode in particular is an interesting one because we will be talking about several different topics all in one. The reason why is because I came across this researcher's uh, publications, and I just thought the overall picture of what she's doing was fascinating. And I invited her over, and I'm so happy that she agreed. Before we move on to today's episode, I would like to thank the Tannenbaum Open Science Institute here at the Neuro in Montreal for supporting the Curious Neuron podcast. Science outreach and knowledge translation is important to both of us, and I'm really happy to have you guys backing what we do here at Curious Neuron. If you are enjoying the podcast, please subscribe and leave a rating and a review. Let me know when you leave a rating and a review. Send me an email, info at curiousneuron.com, and I will send you a free PDF of our Meltdown Mountain, which will help your child when they're having uh, some big emotions. Before we move on to today's episode, I also want to invite you to follow Kirstneron on Instagram, where you get daily posts covering different topics on child development and parenting. And as you know, our parenting model has to do with this holistic approach to parenting, where I invite you to nurture yourself, your child, and each other through community. And um, that is my goal with the Kirstneron uh, Instagram feed. Today, I will be talking with Dr. Emily Coffey, who is the uh, director or the head of the CLASP lab at Concordia University here in Montreal. They focus on audition, sleep, and plasticity. Her work focuses on neuroplasticity associated with complex tasks, using musicianship and its interaction with language as a model. The goal of their lab is to understand how training and sleep interventions can maintain auditory and language function and improve learning uh, and quality of life throughout the lifespan. Her focus on her research isn't on children, but I believe that the work she's doing is interesting to us parents because it might help direct our decisions. And and I have a lot of questions for her um, around uh, music and sleep and learning. So we're going to talk all about that in the interview. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I will see you on the other side. Thank you for joining me on this podcast, Emily. I am beyond excited to talk about your research. Um, I guess before we begin, I'd love for the audience to get to know you a little bit more. Can you describe a little bit about what you do in your lab? First of all, thank you. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here and um, it's nice to have the <laughs> opportunity to talk about our work. Uh, so my lab is about audit- audition, sleep, mm-hmm. and neuroplasticity. So we're studying how all of those three things interact. And that's a deliberately vague statement because we have a lot of different projects that touch on different aspects of that. Uh, But essentially my background is in auditory cognitive neuroscience. So I'm interested in how the auditory system works and um, how we can use music as a means of studying it and a means of changing it. Um, And then there's another part of that, which is how sleep is involved and the two things together Uh, have something to do with neuroplasticity, how you can change the brain and how experience and training changes the brain. What I found really interesting is as I was 
falling into the the rabbit hole of all your studies and reading everything, I just got really stuck in trying to see the link, right? Not stuck, but I, I found it interesting because I did see studies on language and neuroplasticity and and music uh, ability and and multilingualism and and sleep. And I was trying to understand how all of this connected together. Where did it begin, I guess, with, with regards to your research? And how did it end up with touching all of these topics? How are they all related? Oof, that's a really long story. I mean, I'm oh. one of those people who has a lot of very divergent interest. And as mm -hmm. I'm developing my own lab and our research program, we're following a bit my many interests, but also the interest of the students. And often we find ways of putting them together in new ways. And that's what's mm -hmm. exciting and interesting for me. So in some senses, I'm trying to constrain myself a bit and to go in only four <laughs> directions instead of 10, but it still <laughs> looks quite divergent, but it, we constantly find links between them, even if it's just methods wise. Um, mm. my, my background is actually starting off in, in aviation. Um, I was a pilot for a while. Um, I was an astronaut trainer at the European Space Agency for a while. Uh, then I studied audition and sleep. And uh, we've even been going back to the space stuff a little bit. We're doing some collaborations with researchers who uh, look at how operators who are flying swarms of drones for exploration purposes or mm. what have you, how their cognitive load is influenced and how we can measure it. So that's kind of coming full circle and going back a little bit to aviation and to operational environments. Uh, but today, I guess we're going to talk about the audition yeah. and the neuroplasticity and the music part of it. So your four pillars of focus will become five, <laughs> five and six, right? At least. <laughs> yeah. Keeps things interesting. <laughs> yes. So I, I think a lot of um, parents that are part of this community are, are really interested in, in music ability and understanding it a little bit more. Um, I, I think what's fascinating is when you look at your research is it's not just about playing an instrument, but there are so many different parts to that that parents might not understand. Where do we begin in understanding that as somebody who's never studied that before? You know, which part of, you know, music ability are important for us to, to understand as parents? Well, I think people are interested in music and how it changes the brain for different reasons. Some people are very interested in music um, in its own right and they want to know what makes a child become a progeny become a performer have a career yes. that that's kind of a different thing my focus is more on using it as a model complex task that allows us to understand more about how the brain changes itself and more how we interact with the environment and how that changes the brain so for me mm -hmm. it's more a tool even though I do like music and I do find it interesting in its own right I think maybe what parents would be more interested in is is music good for kids? Should we invest in it? Should we give them music lessons? Does it improve their cognition in some way? Are there answers to that in research? Uh, are there, because parents have asked me that question. Um, and, and then I want to get into your music and noise task, your min task, because I, I tested it out and was <laughs> just baffled by like the sound and the, <laughs> the different sounds that came out of that in the in what you've read in research. Is there, what would be the takeaway when it comes to music that that is applicable to parents? Well, probably not that playing Mozart to your kids is going to make them into geniuses or enhance you, their yes. math skills or any of that stuff. Um, yeah. Usually when these things are taken up by popular media and even by companies, they're a bit blown out of proportion, mm. distorted. Um, mm. so, but I do think that music is a very valuable thing for children to engage in, um, just to understand that it. Uh, tune specific abilities and where these abilities overlap with other things that we're interested in as humans, like with this uh, like with language or this hearing noise task that I guess we're going to talk about. Um, I think 
that's maybe the practically useful side of music. But of course, music is valuable and interesting in its own right as an art form, as a means of expression, social cohesion, all those other things that are more kind of on the on the humanities end of things. I'm going to play an audio at this point. Um, so for those of you listening, it's coming up. Now, now that you've heard the audio, this is what I was spending a lot of time on your lab website, listening to all these little audio clips. Basically, you know, this noise and lots of different sounds at, the, at first, but then if you really try to focus, you can hear the notes that are going to come up after. What is this music and noise task and, and why do you use that in research? Uh, okay, well, this is a horrible task that we have to uh, devise <laughs> to try to separate out the skills that go into this this large scale or complex scale, which we call hearing and noise perception. So hearing and noise perception is something that we do every day, that children do in classrooms, um, that we do in our work life and often in social contexts as well. And essentially the image I can make for you is uh, if you wanted to go to a restaurant and it's crowded and there's loud music playing and there's the sound of clattering plates in the background and lots of people talking and you're trying to hear what your conversation partner has to say. Hmm. You really have to work hard to do that. And you're using many skills at the same time to do that. Some of the things that you're using are, you might look at their lips. And when you look at their lips, you can see when sound is being produced. And that gives you some expectation of what you should listen for in this noisy sound stream. Um, maybe if they're sitting off to your left, you know that you have to direct your attention uh, to your left ear a little bit more where it sounds louder and maybe it's a little bit faster than, or sorry, it hits your left ear before your right ear. Um, you can also use what you know about the context. What's, what is the conversation about? You can use what you know about the speaker. Um, mm. How is their voice having a low pitch in general or a high pitch? Uh, your linguistic knowledge helps you to predict which sound, which words will fit into a sentence. So there's all this stuff that you're combining at once in order to um, listen to your converse conversational partner. And some people find this more easy or more difficult. And if you are a musician, you actually find it easier in general. So there's also a matter of how fatiguing it is for you, how easy it is for you. And of course, this has implications in the classroom. If there's a child who does this particularly well, they won't have any trouble if, if the classroom is noisy, focusing on their teacher mm -hmm. for all day. If someone is worse at hearing and noise perception, um, then maybe by midday, they're trying really hard, but they're too tired and they just can't do it anymore. And they lose what's happening in the afternoon lessons. It's also very applicable uh, to think about this at the end of the life because older adults are often losing a bit of their hearing, their neural system doesn't work so well, doesn't transmit information from the auditory environment very well. Um, and so they have to work harder to understand people. And especially in social contexts, if it's effortful, they will choose to avoid those contexts or withdraw from their families, choose not to go to the loud restaurant. Um, and that can actually cause, well, of course, it causes them to withdraw from their family, which is bad, but it can also cause cognitive decline more quickly. Mm. Uh, so we're interested in understanding hearing noise and all the things that goes it, go into it so that we can understand why are musicians better and how can we potentially train people to improve this skill so it uh, helps them in educational, vocational, and social contexts. 
That was going to be my follow-up question. I was curious to know, like, if somebody who's younger and hasn't trained in music, are they able to train this ability? Because um, I'm thinking also, like you mentioned, the kids in school, it might be difficult for them to focus on what the teacher is saying sometimes when there's noise in the classroom. We often quickly move towards attentional, you know, deficits or difficulties in children. But is there a small part of that that could be trained within what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. Um, in hearing noise perception, you have bottom-up and top-down influences. So bottom-up would be things like, how well is that auditory system capturing pitch information or fine temporal information? And how well is it is it translating up to the cortex? Um, whereas an attentional control is more of a top-down thing. So if you have better control, even if your upcoming information is not as good, either because it's degraded, because there's lots of noise in the environment, or because your cognitive system is not working that well, then you have to use attention to compensate, and that's going to make you tired. So yes, yeah. uh, there are differences between people and how well they control their attention, but it would be even better if we could tune their bottom-up skills so that they didn't even need attention and it would not be effortful to listen in a, in a noisy situation. That's really interesting. And I'm sure a lot of parents who have a child with some attentional difficulties are questioning now, <laughs> what, 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 what should I speak to my doctor about? <laughs> but I guess is this, this is something that's still in progress and, and still new relatively in, in research, or is this something that we've known for a while? Um, I think there's a lot more work to be done, but maybe mm. it's, there's um, two types of studies that we do in our line of work. One is cross-sectional and the other is longitudinal. I think there have mm. been a, quite a number of long, uh, cross-sectional studies in which we're looking at, say, musicians and non-musicians and seeing how different they are in, in hearing a noise. And I'm mostly working with young adult populations, sometimes with older populations, but this is also being done in children um, mm. to see if children who have a few years of musical training are better than matched um, controls, and it turns mm. out that they are. But maybe more interesting and less studied is uh, the longitudinal change that can be caused over some kind of a training intervention. So there are a few studies showing that either musical intervention or um, a computerized um, task in which you're asked to make fine distinctions between sounds, this kind of thing can actually tune your system a little bit and make it easier for to, you to do hearing noise. So we're actually doing a study on that in adolescence in the near future. And this is mm -hmm. going to be, um, we're going to measure some young students. I think they're going to be in the 15, 16 range uh, before mm -hmm. they take a, a piano course. That's a semester mm -hmm. long. And we have a match controls who are going to be doing a visual arts course, which in theory mm -hmm. shouldn't change anything in the auditory system. No. Um, and so we're going to measure both their piano skills and their music and noise skills before they start the piano training. And then we'll do it at the end of, um, after the semester mm -hmm. ends. And what we'd like to know is whether it becomes easier for them as they learn to play the piano and how, how much of a difference there is over that relatively short time span. There have been a few such studies, one in older adults, I think, um, looking at choir training. Um, so people would meet once a week and do some singing. And after some period of months, they actually found that those who had done this choir practice had uh, better hearing noise perception. So that's kind of promising to say that yes. um, we can probably change this with training. And music is a great thing to do for this kind of training because it, so it is naturally re rewarding. It keeps many people engaged and involved. And so it's a good way to actually tune the system because it's, it's something that people enjoy doing for the most part. Mm -hmm. 
It's is is this kind of training what we consider training musical ability? Because I've seen studies around that, and and also I think there was like a I don't know one of yours that talked about like musical ability and multilingualism. When what what do we mean when we say music ability? Is it certain like understanding or hearing certain tones, or how does that work? I try to stay away from this word ability because oh, okay, it's not very clear always what part of that is determined by biology or maybe early experience. Um, Got it. <laughs> so yeah, I would say more. Um, predisposition, which may have some kind of be genetic uh, basis, or certainly biologic biological basis. We try to separate that out from um, the parts that you can tune or that you can change with training. Mm, got it. Okay. And what is the link between this um, and multilingualism? Because I, you have looked at language as well, right? Yeah, so both language and music use a number of the same brain resources. So if you train on one, there can be a certain amount of transfer to skills in the other. And um, especially for hearing and noise, that is one that we see a correlation. Um, so we don't know yet, I guess, I guess it's both top down and bottom up. Musicians are better at this fine sound representation because they have spent maybe tens of thousands of hours paying close attention to pitch. So they're better at um, pitch representation. That means that if they're in a noisy restaurant trying to hear their friend and they pay attention to the pitch of that person's voice, that information will be better represented and better sent up to the cortex to be used. Um, at the same time, because they have, say, 10,000 hours of, of paying attention to audition and to auditory motor and auditory visual interactions, they're also better at controlling their own processes with uh, attentional mechanisms. That makes it much clearer. I, I hadn't realized that there was that much of a uh, there were that many similarities between the two. Um, so in the music and noise task, we decided to include um, their language experience as a kind of secondary variable, just in case it did something. Um, here we're working in Montreal. We have a very multi bilingual, multilingual population. And often it's just a source of variability that kind of messes with everything. Uh, so we said, okay, we're going to ask them about their musical history and how many hours they've had training in their youth and such. But we're also going to ask them how many languages they speak and how well. Uh, we just kind of did this on a, as a side control. And when we analyzed it afterwards, we found that um, there was an additional benefit. Uh, so first there's a benefit of being a musician, and then there's an additional benefit that's separate from that of having experience in multiple languages. We didn't have the right data set to go on with that and see if it's more on the attentional side or on the bottom-up side. Mm -hmm. But in either case, learning to play a musical instrument or learning more languages does help to tune some of the same networks. Mm -hmm. Wow. I, I, I now So now parents are going to register their children tomorrow <laughs> to, and start teaching them a second or third language. But you're, I, I love that aspect here of Montreal, the fact that we speak so many languages. And sometimes from my experience now for the past few years of working with parents, they'll often question whether or not it would be a good thing to introduce another language. And the answer is always yes. But I think sometimes there are misconceptions placed out there where if you learn more than one language when you're young, um, you know, that you'll, they'll 
there'll be a delay in language. I remember, so just a, a side note from those for those of you that are listening, um, we went to school together <laughs> for a PhD, not in the same lab, um, but we're involved in, in some outreach together. And I remember you posting about, I think it was your daughter at the time and all the words she was learning in Italian, I think, right? And I just, it, it marked me. And then I had my child and, and my first child and she was learning the words in Italian too because my husband's Italian. And and it was just, it's, it's so beautiful to see them learning these different languages and to see that the research supports that we should be introducing them and not shy away from doing that at all. Um, I guess now as a, as a mom, we're not, we're not talking as research, like not as a researcher, but as a mom, I, I think you had a, a really nice experience of introducing these languages, right? In your home. Yeah, that's been another fascinating journey. So I only study language a bit as it relates to music and auditory system. There are other people who should probably interview for specifics of early language experience, but just as a parent. Um, so my husband is Italian and we're in Quebec, so we send the kids to school in French. And then we went for a year to Germany. Um, and the wow. kids at that time, I don't know, they were about three and five, I guess. And so we said, okay, well, we'll throw them into German daycare and see what happens. And eight months later, they were fluent in their fourth language. <laughs> well, at kid level, right? I mean, yeah. they were discussing philosophy, but uh, they, they could function as basically as native speakers. And wow. I think that's something that's been really amazing to watch as a parent is just how fast they can change with experience and how many different things they can absorb. Um, and yeah, certainly they, they do very well with the three languages. The German's fading a little bit because we've been outside of a German environment for a while. Um, but certainly they're, they're basically native level at three languages, which is quite interesting to watch. I'm very jealous. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly same. And 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 I also was marked by the play structures that you had posted once many years back when you were in Germany, I believe, and how tall they were and the, the beating of my heart. <laughs> Just imagining myself being there. But when it comes to like, I, and I know we're, we're, we're going off track, but it's just because I think it's still important to parents. But just the contrast in terms of like risky play <laughs> here, which is like jumping off a rock <laughs> versus there being in a play structure that's as tall as my house. <laughs> yeah, I mean, having small kids in a different cultural culture and environment is very interesting because you, of course, visit all the play parks, which wouldn't, you wouldn't do if you were just doing an exchange as a student or just working there. And certainly the play structures are kind of insane there. Like, I mean, I would climb, climb up, up on them and even be scared or have a little bit of vertigo from what? the height of them. <laughs> Uh, they're yeah great fun though really nicely designed I'm sure different philosophy to risk taking for sure yeah exactly I would just have to close my eyes I can't look at this (laughs) how how did you end up studying sleep (laughs) oh boy um okay so I've been interested in sleep um just being curious about it like why do we spend um, at least a third of our lives and even a greater proportion in children just kind of turned off. And what is our brain during, <laughs> doing during that time? Why is it so important that we can, sh- that we risk being attacked by lions <laughs> or whatever in the past? Uh, yeah. why, why do we do this? And there are many reasons now that we know for which sleep is important. And um, the memory consolidation aspect, which means mm. taking temporarily stored memories and transferring them into long-term storage in your, in your neocortex is uh, one of the things that we do during sleep. And so since I'm interested in uh, plasticity and since we have this great model to work with um, with musical training as a means of generating and studying 
and neuroplasticity. We thought, okay, well, maybe we can combine that with sleep. And so now we do a, a whole bunch of studies in which we have people learning to play the piano for the first time. Um, and we track exactly all their performance metrics and their physiology and their EG while they're doing that. And then we have them sleep. We do different things to their sleep and we wake them up and we make them do it again. And we try to see what has changed and how that correlates with uh, their neurophysiology, what's going on in the brain. Um, and also we can even perturb sleep with sound, which is a really interesting bi-directional thing that we can do. Mm. So we can both look at um, how experience and sound changes the, the brain and how what sleep has to do with that. But we can even influence the brain's activity in sleep with sound. Uh, so that technique is known as uh, closed-loop auditory stimulation. The idea is that we record um, electroencephalography, so EEG for short. That means we put some electrodes on the scalp and we observe and record the electrical activity that's produced by the brain. And as people go into deeper sleep, your brain starts doing different things. Um, so the brain waves get slower. You start to see the uh, something called a slow oscillation, which is like a great big wave in the brain. Um, and you still also see things called sleep spindles, which have a lot to do with the transfer of information from those temporarily stored um, memories up into the cortex for kind of long-term storage. Um, and so if you listen in on the brain with this EEG and you have a computer recognize when you go into one of these big slow oscillation waves that's associated with memory and you throw in a little sound at just the right time, you can actually excite the cortex and make it do another one and make it do more sleep spindles and stimulate that memory process. And if you wake people up after they've had this happen to them for a sleep period, usually do naps, um, they will actually perform slightly better than people who have not had this happen. So it's a way that we can actually manipulate, play with, try to understand um, sleep and memory processes by actually using the auditory uh, system kind of in reverse, if you will. So they aren't waking up when you stimulate them or when you add that sound? That's right. So it's quiet okay. enough that it goes in, um, but it doesn't wake <laughs> them up. But it does have an effect on the brain. That's fascinating. So they're able to almost, because you said they're performing better. So it's almost as if those sounds are helping them learn as they're sleeping. <laughs> I think it's more it's stimulating the consolidation process. It, you're not learning new stuff while you sleep. You're taking no, yeah. those memories of stuff that you just learned and uh, replaying it so that it, it gets more well-learned, more burnt in. I, I have these memories of my mom telling me to go to bed before an exam because you needed your sleep to, to make sure that you performed well and remembered everything. So as much as all her other, like, you know, the cold in the winter makes you get sick and all that, whatever it was, she was right about the sleep. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and for two reasons, I think... Um, there's the memory consolidation stuff we've been talking mm. about, but also uh, sleep it has some functions in kind of cleaning up your brain, resetting it, getting it ready for the next day. Um, parents will know this because kids that get overtired start to react in interesting ways. And yes. if you get, let them have a new, a nice, uh, a nice night of sleep, the next day they're kind of reset back to normal. And that's true for adults as well. Just maybe the yes. overt behaviors are not so obvious. <laughs> yeah. uh, sometimes yes, sometimes <laughs> no. It depends. <laughs> I, I, absolutely love that and and so now this is your your new this is like a new study you were talking about that you've been doing or has this um is this uh ongoing regarding um, the sleep we've done a series of studies on this the first ones were just trying to better understand the, the neurophysiology behind how mm. the 
auditory stimulation of brain waves works. So we had people sleep actually in the um, MEG scanner, that's magnetoencephalography, and we put wow. in sounds and we tried to see how is that sound transiting up in the auditory system to the cortex? Where does it go from there? What effects when it goes in? things like that. And now we're just getting to the behavioral part where we have people trying to learn the piano and then we're stimulating them in different ways and seeing what is the best time to stimulate, uh, what does it actually do, and how which aspects of musical performance does it actually improve. Hmm. And I'm curious what the opposite would be if it's if it's been done, but like sleep deprivation, I'm saying this again from a parent's point of view, you know, <laughs> if the sleep is so important and I know that sometimes as new parents, we don't have the sleep or sometimes our children are not meeting those hours of sleep that they should have. We keep hearing about how important it is, but now having heard you, even without the music part of it, the importance of the memory consolidation, um, if you were to do this study, but deprive them of sleep and wake them up every, you know, half an hour, or 45 minutes, would they, what, what do you anticipate would happen? Or has it been done before? I think there have been quite a few sleep deprivation studies. A problem with that is sleep deprivation changes a lot of things, not just the memory consolidation stuff. It's not just that they're not sleeping. It's also that you're stressing them out and you're changing their cortisol <laughs> levels. And uh, there's all kinds of other stuff going going on. Um, and it's also the kind of unpleasant studies to be involved with. Yeah. So I haven't actually done any sleep deprivation studies yet. Um, yeah. One thing that's maybe a little bit reassuring to um, to parents who are not getting enough sleep or to kids that are not getting, when their kids don't get enough sleep, is that uh, we're quite flexible. We do rebound. Um, sleep is homeostatically regulated, meaning that if you don't get enough of it one night, you're going to get more of it or more more intensely mm -hmm. the next night. So I think there's been a little bit of scaremongering saying that if you lose uh, this as many hours of um, sleep a night, mm -hmm. then you're going to have some kind of cortical problem. I don't know. Yes. Cortical shriveling. <laughs> they do say that. Yes. Um, and it is important to sleep and to, to try to get that consistently. But, um, but I, I do think we're quite resilient systems. So mm. if you don't get some sleep for even for a relatively long period of time, like while your child is not sleeping through the night, you will eventually recover, even if you don't remember everything that happened during that period. I love that. <laughs> I, I guess to, to conclude our, our conversation, I, I'd be interested in knowing with all the research that you've done now up to now, what are the what are some takeaways that you think are very interesting to you, number one, as a parent, but also that you would want parents to know because it might make a difference in decisions that they make in their parenting journey. Oh, uh, so we do fundamental research, which is really upstream from recommending that people do things. So I can Got really it. say very general things like sleep mm. is important. Music is good for you. And the brain is really plastic through the lifespan, but most impressively in childhood. Um, aside <laughs> from that, uh, you know, <laughs> the systems are really res resilient and, and plastic. And, and it's interesting. It's very fascinating to watch children develop. Um, mm. And so any kind of enriched experience that you can give them like through music or language exposure is always going to be good. Um, mm. So I, I think people should maybe not worry too much about that. And if they don't do music or don't learn enough another language, uh, that's fine. They're going to find something else to do. They're going to develop some other skills. And in society, we need a range of people with different skills. So that's going to be exactly. fine. If there's one thing that I think music training is particularly useful and applicable for, it's probably maybe because I'm interested in it at the moment, but it's this hearing and noise perception. Because mm. I think that's something that can really influence, um, it can set people up 
to make sound processing easier throughout their education, throughout their, their work life, and even into older adulthood, if they tune their, those systems. And it's easiest to tune them early on, so in childhood. Mm. Interesting. Thank you for sharing your knowledge with us today. Um, is there is there a lab that people can join you or find out about the next studies that you have? If people in Montreal are interested in participating generally in music and language studies uh, with their children, um, this is a really a hot spot for neuroscience, in, especially in that area. Um, so there are a couple of um, organizations which deal with that. One is uh, Brahms. I forgot what it stands for, mm -hmm. International Laboratory for Music, Language, and the Brain, something like that. Um, and the other mm -hmm. one is CRBLM, which is Center for Music, Language, and the Brain. I don't know. They're highly related. C yeah, CRBLM. I'll add, I'll add all the links to the show notes for the podcast episode. Okay, but th those are yep. groups of researchers within the Montreal region, many of whom are interested in these topics. And so um, if you get on their mailing list, they very frequently have studies that people can participate in. Um, and for different age groups and uh, there's I think there are a few running right now and uh, stuttering um, on the importance mm -hmm. of rhythm and rhythm rhythmic perception and reading all kinds of different stuff going on I love that thank you thank you for sharing everything with us and I it was so nice to see you again <laughs> you too